began his career in Hollywood early in the 1970s when he wrote and directed a movie simply called Benji. That film was about a lovable puppy named Benji, but would go on to spawn an entire franchise. For the love of Benji, Benji's very own Christmas story, Benji at work, Benji the hunted, and so on. There's been a number of Benji movies, including the as-yet-to-be-released reboot of the series that was announced in 2016. After the original Benji was released in 1974, though, Joe Camp went about writing a film that was very loosely based on a true story, Homps. Oh, and Benji even made a cameo appearance in the film played by a pup named Ben-Jo, not the same dog that played him in the movie Benji that was a pup named Higgins. By loosely, that's actually how the film Homps was marketed. Posters marketing the film in 1976 claimed that it was a riotous adventure based very loosely on a U.S. cavalry experiment. Didn't know about that experiment? Neither did I, until I had the chance to chat with author and historian Scott Rank from the History Unplugged podcast. Fortunately, Scott agreed to come on the show to fill us in on the true story behind the Disney film Homps. I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we sit down with Scott, let's set up our game. If you're new to the show, the game is Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to give you three statements. Two of them are true, and one of them is a lie. Listen closely for the two truths scattered throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Okay, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the U.S. Cavalry really did run an experiment to completely replace horses with camels. Number two, the railroad wasn't the deciding factor for why camels were not used in the cavalry. Number three, after the camel experiment, many of the camels were released to the wild. All right, got them? Without further ado, let's dive into our chat with Scott Rank about homps. This week, I'm super excited to be joined by Scott Rank. Scott is a historian who earned his PhD in history from the Central European University in Budapest. He's also written a dozen history books and hosted numerous podcasts, including The Scholarpreneur and History in Five Minutes, which got over 1.5 million downloads across 150 episodes over the span of five years. And I'm sure those download numbers have gone up quite a bit since then. But that podcast made way for one of my favorite history podcasts, which Scott now hosts, called History Unplugged. So before we begin, Scott, can you let us know a little bit more about your podcast and where people can find it? Yeah, thanks. Um, so yeah, it's called His- History Unplugged. You can Google that and or you can go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com. Uh, and also, if you think about it a second, it doesn't make any sense because by its very nature, a podcast needs to be plugged in. Uh, and I only realized that after the fact, but there's like 50 other podcasts that have unplugged on their title. So if you're looking for a name for one, great way to do it. But <laughs> Um, yeah, so what got me going is uh, History Unplugged. I have an episode every weekday. On Monday, I do a long-form interview with a book author or a historical consultant for movie, TVs, or video games. And then Tuesday through Friday, I take audience questions and I'll answer literally any question they have. So it can be high-minded, high-minded stuff on World War II tactics in the Pacific Theater, all the way down to who had the worst gas in history. So I'm really up for just about anything. <laughs> Who had the worst uh, gas in history? Nice. I didn't catch that one. I'll have to look at that. <laughs> yeah, I had to do a lot of research. It really got my gears turning, but it's a interesting topic to explore. <laughs> All right. So today, the movie that we're going to be looking at is 1976 Homps. That's H-A-W-M-P-S with an exclamation point. Uh, it's directed by Joe Camp. And quite honestly, this one is a little bit tough to find. Um, it's not streaming anywhere. I had to actually purchase the movie. So I'm going to assume that most people probably haven't seen this movie before listening to this episode. With that in mind, I'm going to try to add a little bit more context to the questions when it's relevant to the movie. Does it sound good? Sounds great. All right. Let, let's get started then. I'm going to 
start with kind of the overall believability of the film's plot. So the movie kind of sets it up in the beginning. It has some text that talks about the before the great civil war, uh, Millard Fillmore was president and Jefferson Davis was secretary of war. Abraham Lincoln was a young congressman. And then it talks about an extraordinary experiment taking place that could have changed the face of the old West. If successful, the horse would have been replacing the U.S. or the camel, rather, would be replacing the horse in the U.S. cavalry. And then the movie says, this is the way it happened, or at least essentially the way it happened. Sort of. So it kind of kicks off with a little bit of humor there. And I guess that kind of leads into the first question. Was that essentially the way it happened? Okay, so the general description is basically accurate. There was an attempt by the U.S. government to bring in camels, and camels were brought in. And uh, there was an experiment to use them in place of horses. Now, it wasn't to replace horses. That is off. But um, just a little bit of context about the movie. So I've done stuff like this before, and like what you do, Dan, where I look into movies and see how historically accurate they are. Mm -hmm. And usually I hear about the movie, like Kingdom of Heaven, about the Crusades, and then I'll go back and research this one was the opposite. I knew about the historical event of the U.S. Camel Corps. And uh, then somebody said to me, oh, it's like that 70s movie Homps. I thought, oh, well, what's that? I've never heard of that. And it's hard to find, like you said. It's sort of a, it comes out of the 70s live action Disney wheelhouse with movies that usually starred Jodie Foster back in the day, like That Darn Cat. <laughs> um, it's also, and I realized watching the movie, uh, it's kind of the poor man's Blazing Saddles uh, it came out a few years afterwards, so it's trained to have like an irreverent take on the Old West, except Blazing Saddles, which is a hard R movie, and we can't quote on here on this podcast. We'll probably get that E from iTunes for explicit <laughs> content. So it tries to be a PG version of Blazing Saddles. I don't really know how you do that, but um, okay, so that's what the movie is. Uh, I was able to find it on YouTube. Uh, I don't hope I didn't violate any copyright law, but that's how people can see it. Um, okay, so, but just in general, what happened? Okay, so it did happen, and here's the background context. Uh, so, in the mid 19th century, the US Army wants to use camels as pack animals in the southwestern United States. Uh, camels were hardy and well suited to travel through the region, but the Army didn't want to use them for military use. Uh, the Civil War interfered with the experiment, and the project was abandoned, and the animals were sold off at the auction. Okay, that's the short summary of the experiment. Uh, but here's some more background context. So in the 1830s, America is continuing to expand westward. This is a few decades after Lewis and Clark. But once you get into the desert in the southwest, the terrain gets inhospitable, and the climate's really hard for pioneers and settlers. There's arid deserts, there's mountain peaks, there's impassable rivers in the southwest, so the first idea for using camels is by uh, a U.S. Army lieutenant by the name of George Crossman. And he had the idea, and he made a study of how to get through this difficult ter terrain. And he sends a report on his findings to Washington, D.C. And I just uh, I have a quote here. Here's what he says. For strength in carrying burdens, for patient endurance of labor, and privation of food, water, and rest, and in some respects speed also, the camel and dromedary, and that's the one hump camel you'd see in Arabia. The two humped one is the Bactrian uh, mm -hmm. camel that would be in like cold climate stuff. Um, he says that they're unrivaled among animals. The ordinary loads for camels are from seven to 900 pounds each. And with these, they can travel from 30 to 40 miles a day for many days in succession. They will go without water and without, and with but little food for six or eight days or to said even longer. The feet are alike well-suited for traversing grassy or sandy plains or rough rocky hills and paths, and they require no shooting. Um, so just now, in hindsight, it seems very silly, and I think where this movie comes from is, well, how that sounds dumb and cheesy to bring in camels. You know, what were these people thinking? You know, bring the circus into town. But it wasn't a bad idea because when Napoleon went to Egypt, the French successfully used camels there because there were so many in Egypt. Uh, most people don't know this, but in World War One, there were about 3 million camels used for different um, military capacities to carry equipment. Uh, even up to World War II, the Germans used 50,000 camels when they were in uh, southern Russia to carry gas tanks to their tanks uh, or um, gas cans to their tanks uh, when their supply lines were overextended. So, I mean, camels, they were the 
long-haul freight truck of the ancient world. The Silk Road worked because of camels. They could carry so much stuff. They could travel so long. Um, they could go weeks without water. And then once they find it, they gulp it down like crazy. Um, but camels had been brought into new climates all over the world. And even in Australia in the 1880s, when there was a gold rush, uh, Afghani Muslims come along. They bring camels, and camels successfully uh, carry mining equipment into the outback. So it was a pretty good idea in a lot of ways. But that's the that's kind of the origin of it in the 1830s when America is uh, pushing to the southwest. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park and it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. So as if I'm hearing this correctly and kind of when I when I watch the movie I'm I'm thinking of okay in the US cavalry so it's going to be a military purpose but it sounds like from what you're saying it wasn't really to do with the military as much it's really just kind of a uh more for transportation of almost goods and and things from long distances but not replacing the horse as it says in the beginning of the movie, it's talking about replacing the horse, which in my mind is like, okay, they're just going to get rid of all the horses and all of the warfare and all you know, all the fighting that the cavalry's doing is going to be done on camel now. But it sounds like that's not the case at all. Right. I mean, there there's nowhere where there's exclusively camels. I mean, even in Roman times when you got into Arabia, Romans preferred using horses uh, because camels work well in certain situations, but in when you get into cities, they're much longer. They're much larger. Mm. Um, the along the Silk Road, they would have special places for cameliers to stop. They were called caravanserais, which means uh, caravan palaces, and there'd be a long interior courtyard where camels could be watered. But it's sort of like they had to be specially constructed around camels and using them in uh, for military purposes. Jefferson Davis, he's the person who gets funding for this project, as the movie's title crawl mentions. Uh, but he was just sort of contemplating or he would write a little bit, imagining soldiers chasing hostile Indians off trails and maybe mounting some artillery on their backs uh, or even like small artillery cannons back then. But that was more just kind of wild speculation rather than um, using them in combat. I mean, there are cases of uh, camel cavalry where soldiers would ride them in some famous historical episodes, but horses are just more maneuverable. They're better for combat. Uh, camels are a lot more expensive. Um, and also in America at the time, the economy is built around the horse. I mean, there's millions of horses, there's horse breeders and camels are absolutely wonderful for carrying equipment as pack animals, but you need special training to be able to handle them. If you don't know what you're doing with a camel, you're in big trouble. Uh, so it's not the, the two could work in uh, conjunction. And unless you get into the really, really inhospitable areas of Arabia, you don't see many places where it's only camels. It's almost always a mix of different pack animals. Hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, Jefferson Davis, and he, of course, went on to become the president of the Confederate States of America during the Civil War. 
Do you know if there was any sort of uh, an attempt by the Confederate states to actually use camels or were they, I mean, since they were just focused on the, the war itself, um, it kind of sounded like he was, Jefferson Davis kind of being behind it. Then if he's the leader of this uh, quote unquote new country, you know, the Confederate states, he would be able to push it through if he really wanted to. Yeah, it's um, so for him um, was for Jefferson Davis. He was the guy behind the experiment. He was the one funding it um, in terms of how it would have been used in the Confederacy. Hmm. Uh, in the beginning of the Civil War, there are some there are some of these camels that are still around, uh, especially since this experiment kicks off in Texas. No one really takes too kindly to um, the camels, but. Jefferson Davis, he's not really hands-on with the experiment, and um, I guess I can talk more about that later of like who's all really involved on the ground. But he's sort of he's more of the guy getting the funding, and he's the he's the public face associated with this. So that's part of why after the Civil War, people in the Union don't like the project because they associate it with Jefferson Davis. Hmm. No, that makes sense. You did mention it being in Texas, and I know in the movie they talk about it taking place in a place called uh, Fort Valverde, Texas. Uh, now, I know I did a little bit of looking up as far as the geography. There is a Valverde County, um, but is was there actually a Fort Valverde, and is that where this experiment took place? Uh, so the place where it takes place is there is a Camp Verde where it gets off the ground, but the uh, Camel Corps takes place in different stages, and that's about maybe like the second or third stage where it kicks in. Uh, so where this, um, kind of how it gets going, the person who's really on the ground, uh, and the major, the ringleader of the Camel Corps, uh, is an officer named, uh, Major Henry Wayne. He's a West Point graduate. He's really enthusiastic about the idea of using camels in different arid climates because he thinks that Texas and New Mexico, he thinks it's all in the same latitude as what he calls camel land, like Arabia and all those places where mm. you would see them in the Middle East. Uh, and he's the one who makes the formal recommendation to the War Department to import camels. And he's the guy who um, actually goes overseas to get the camels. So he submits a report to the War Department in 1847. And this is where he gets the attention of Jefferson Davis, uh, who's um, a senator of Mississippi. And then um, he thought that Wayne's suggestions were worthwhile, so we should look into that. And then in as 1853, I think that's a period where uh, Jefferson becomes Secretary of War uh, under Franklin Pierce. And um, then in 1855, Congress passes an amendment to appropriate $30,000 to go get the camels. So this is where um, uh, Wayne uh, or goes overseas. He goes from New York to Constantinople, Alexandria, uh, I think gets about 40 camels or, or 30 to 40 camels or so and uh, a few cameleers and the cameleers themselves are colorful characters. I'll mention them in a second. Um, and they arrive in Texas in May, 1856. So when they arrive in Texas, it's um, kind of like a, I don't know. It's like the circus comes to town basically. So the, it drops anchor in 1856 and the camels are brought out of the ships in the care of native drivers uh, all these cameleers, they're referred to by the American soldiers as Arabs, even though they're from all different backgrounds from the Ottoman Empire. One of them is Greek. One of them is Syrian. A guy by the name of Haji Ali. A Haji is a guy who goes on the Muslim pilgrimage or the Hajj. But they couldn't pronounce his name, so they just called him Hai Jolly. And there's a folk song about him, Hai Jolly, that um, you can, if you go to YouTube, you can find that pretty uh, easily. Uh, so... Yeah, the, it's a really funny story when the camels first arrive. They're on the ship for several weeks. They're crossing the Atlantic. When they first touch down, they rear up, they kick, they cry, they break their halters. And this is a scene in the movie where the camels run amok and destroy the town and knock over all this different stuff. Um, but once the camels are under control, the whole caravan, I guess you could call it, is going through Houston the cameleers have bells on the camels to single their uh, signal their arrival. And people are going to their windows. They're watching. They're just, they've never seen anything like this. You would never see a camel except in a circus. And circuses don't come to the frontier, which is where this is taking place in the 1850s. Uh, there's a newspaper report that talks about the, um, what the spectacle this is. And it, 
writes that there's a woman who knits together a pair of socks made out of camel hair and sends it to Franklin Pierce. And there's a letter in the archives where you can find this, the, um, where she, he writes back to her, thanking her. So this, uh, Major Wayne, who went to Constantinople and Alexandria to get these camels, is even thinking, huh, I wonder if we can make a whole industry based off of, you know, knitting and producing camel hair. <laughs> Never really works, but um, so that's like the first shipment. And then the second cargo of camels, which are another 40, they'll also land on the Texas coast in 1857. And there's a camp that's established permanently uh, called Camp Verde. It's near San Antonio, where all these experiments are tried with the U.S. Camel Corps. So this is where they get into the nitty-gritty of testing how much can they carry compared to a team of horses, how far can they go, uh, how long can they go without water, and trying to train these different cameliers. So that's the whole Verde connection uh, that you were mentioning about in the movie. Yeah, and, and I'm curious about that because taking place in Texas, and I know the the Mexican American War there ended like uh, 1848. Um, was did that play into that? I mean, it seems like they're kind of running this experiment almost on the the front lines, <laughs> almost. Um, mm-hmm. Was there anything in the relationship, I guess, between or the tensions rather between uh, U.S. and Mexico at the time that played a role in this? Do you think? Uh, well, yeah, it's interesting. Now, the, like the U.S.-Mexican War, like absolutely, that factors into all of this. And there, when all of this land is claimed by the U.S., there is a focus on settling it as quickly as possible. Hmm. And this drives a lot of domestic policy in America in the middle of the 19th century. I mean, you have the Homesteading Act that says land is available for you if you go to it, you cultivate it, you make it productive, and most importantly for the government's perspective, you make it taxable. So that's a great immigration boom to America where anyone can get land. And throughout centuries of medieval and Renaissance European history, land was the ultimate commodity and that land could be given to anyone. Um, but from the U.S. government, they understand they have all this land, but in the great age of colonialism, these great powers are eyeing South America, Africa, um, Indochina, all these different places to colonize. And America understands if we don't take control of this area, then it could be open to others. Uh, Settlers are being sent to Mexico and the Southwest. Uh, (laughs) Interestingly enough, before America even wins, they're sent to Mexican territory as illegal immigrants from America (laughs) to Mexico. Nudge, nudge. Ha, ha, ha. so yeah, there there is a mindset that um, now with the the purpose of the camels, it's not to there's not really a vision that everyone is going to be riding a camel all over the place. It's more of these different supply depots and these different forts in the southwest. We need a way to be able to get equipment from one to the other. When you're in the Midwest of America or in the East, you have a network of rivers. Rivers, there are forts and supply depots you can get off. Then you can mount um, a horse. You can get pack animals. You can supply them with grain. You know that every five or 10 miles or whatever, you can find stores where you can buy more feed. You can get remounts depending on how urgent your uh, trip is. But there's nothing like that in the Southwest. You don't have this um, whole transportation grid and network. So that's what camels are primarily seen as, is creating this... um, sort of overland highway of goods that can at least set up forts. If you at least have the matrix of military presence, that's what will put a foothold of um, U.S. military power there. And then later settlers can come in and fill it out with population. So American presence is secure. Huh. Interesting. It's it's interesting to me that the kind of the relation, not to get too political with it, but we're almost kind of seeing that again, that same sort of thing. I guess we never really learn from history. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So you're talking about the the shipment of camels coming in, and in, in the movie, there's a, a point where um, they just they call them Arabian mounts, so they assume that they're going to be Arabian horses. Was there any sort of confusion like that around the camels that were coming in from the people that were actually uh, involved in the experiment? 
Yeah, that's what they keep saying. Like these guys, oh, I can't wait to write Arabians. Yeah. And then they realize it's from that. I think that's a scene that if you can look at a blatant ripping off of Blazing Saddles, that's it. Where, <laughs> um, again, definitely can't quote this on air, but when um, a guy is shouting, the sheriff is near, and he's not saying near, but that's what people think he's saying. And those who've seen Blazing Saddles know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it's uh, that's a big rip off there. Uh, but there is a little bit of truth because an Arabian horse is what ambassadors would gift each other with. These are treasured gifts. If you were um, Genghis Khan or Napoleon or Alexander the Great or George Washington, I think these different people rode Arabian horses. Like all the way back to antiquity, they're seen as the finest of mm. mounted animals. And I'm not a horse guy, so I can't drill down, but whatever breed of horse you would have, um, your average person would never ride an Arabian, may not even ever see an Arabian. So for many people on the frontier whose life is connected to the horse, I'm sure they would actually jump at the chance to be able to ride one. Now, okay, so I, that isn't true, and I get it. They're they're just trying to have like a funny little thing here. Um, people would have known far ahead of time, of course, that it was camels coming uh, to the experiment because uh, the people associated with it actually had to travel all the way to Constantinople to get the camels and then bring them back here. Um, so far ahead of time, soldiers would have known of this. But anyway, that that, that wasn't something that happened. <laughs> OK, so then once the camels arrive, at least according to the movie, they pretty much determine their effectiveness by doing a race between the camels and the horses. Um, of course, as, as we kind of learned earlier, they're not really – in truth, they weren't really intended to replace the horses. So was there any sort of truth to this camel versus horse race that we saw in the movie? Or I guess the ultimate question then, how did the cavalry determine the camel's effectiveness and whether or not it was something we're going to move forward with? Yeah. Um, now, in the movie, there is this big race between these um guys with these horses and the camel ears and i can't even remember in the movie what the contest was so i think i forgot about like a third or almost all of it after i was done it, it was just um, the first to the finish line back you know wins pretty much and that would determine the effectiveness okay <laughs> it, was, it was really yeah. that simple <laughs> yeah you can explain the plot of the movie in about a paragraph on wikipedia after IMDb, <laughs> yeah. So yeah it's it, it's not very hard but um okay so there wasn't a test like this, but well, okay. There was something sort of like this at uh, camp Verde when they're running experiments to um, see the usefulness of camels compared to horses. And Wayne does devise a small field test. Wayne is the person who's running this whole experiment. Uh, he sends three wagons, each with a six mule team and six camels to San Antonio for a supply of oats. Uh, the mule drawn wagons each carried 1800 pounds of oats and they take nearly five days to make the return trip to the camp. The six camels carried about 3,700 pounds of oats, and they made the trip in two days. So it shows that they can they have speed and they also have carrying ability. There, are, there were a lot of other tests to confirm the ability of the camels, and in a lot of instances, they're better than the horse and the mule. And Davis is happy with this result. When he's reporting to Congress, he says... These tests fully realize the anticipation entertained of the usefulness in the transportation of military supplies. Thus far, the result is as favorable as the most sanguine could have hoped. A nice little quote there. Um, yeah, so over time, when they're running these tests, uh, the camels are called the ships of the desert because of how much they can carry, how fast they can go, like four miles an hour. Um, they uh, eventually start doing uh, ferrying trips between Tucson and Los Angeles. Uh, and yeah, camels have a lot of, in addition to carrying more than horses, they can go up trails that wagons can't go up because they have legs. Hmm. And that seems stupid to hear, but um, I saw this in action once where I saw the power of an animal to do things that a car can't do. And we don't appreciate this in America because America was really built up with the automobile in mind. I mean, get outside of Boston and New York and there's roads and there's infrastructure for cars to get everywhere. But what if you have a place that isn't built for the car or isn't built for a wheeled vehicle like a wagon? Um, and one example is I lived in Turkey for a number of years and one of my favorite cities on earth is called Mardin. It's in the Southeast. It's near the Syrian border. Sadly, you really can't go there because of the conflict. Yeah. So it's, um, hard to get to, but, um, 
the city is ancient. It's thousands of years old. It's built on an enormous hill that would overlook the Syrian plain. So there was a Roman garrison there to watch out for invasions. Uh, the old part of the city is built on this massive hill, and it looks like an Arabian Nights fantasy land come to life. There's stairs going up all over the side of the city. And to this day, people use donkeys to carry everything. I saw a guy carry, using a donkey to carry a bunch of iPads up to his electronics store. Um, because there's just like, there's stairs everywhere and cars can't get up that, but something with legs can get up that. So nothing with legs can carry more than a camel. So that's why it's successful in this trip. And, um, and one other thing to just kind of illustrate how really this camel experiment could have worked out and how it seemed like it was on the cusp of success is, um, the story from the late 1850s where the camels are being used uh, to survey a route for a wagon road in Arizona from Fort Defiance to the Colorado River. Uh, Edward Beale, he's a military officer, leads the survey expedition. And in this party, there were 25 camels, uh, 44 soldiers, 12 wagons, and uh, dogs, horses, and mules. There's all sorts of different animals there. Uh, Beale was he didn't really like the camels at first because they first move slower than the horses and mules um, and they go slower. But the second week of the journey, he notes that the camels were performing better. The men know how to handle them better. There's kind of a learning curve. Uh, and they were also idle at Camp Verde for a number of months. So they had to kind of settle back into things. But he notes that they can carry 700 pounds, go to steady speed. Uh, by the time the expedition arrives at Fort Defiance, Beale was convinced of the camel's abilities, and he writes to Jefferson Davis's successor as a Secretary of War. It gives me great pleasure to report the entire success of the expedition with the camels so far as I have tried it. Laboring under all the disadvantages, we have arrived here without an accident, and although we have used the camels every day with heavy packs, have fewer sore backs and disabled ones by far than would have been the case traveling with pack mules. On starting, I packed nearly 700 pounds on each camel, which I fear was too heavy a burden for the commencement of so long a journey. They, however, packed it daily until that weight was reduced by our diurnal use of it as forage for our mules. And also, the camels can basically live off the land. They can eat scrub. They can eat plants that you find along the trail. Mules can't. Horses can't. You have to bring the food with them. So... And one, this is what really convinced people that there was something to camels. At one point, the expedition is lost, and they were mistakenly led to an impassable canyon. For 36 hours, the lack of grass and water made the mules frantic. So out of all of this party, there's a small expedition that goes out on camels to go out and find a trail. And they find a river 20 miles away and lead the expedition to it. And the camels basically save everyone's lives. So from then on, then on, the camels are used as scouts to go forward and find all the watering holes for everyone. So right up to the late 1850s, it seems like this experiment is really working out. Yeah, And it, it sounds like, um, like you said, it was on the cusp of, of success, and we, we even see that in the movie, like in, with their very simplistic terms, right? You have the race, a 300-mile race, and whoever wins, wins, right? And in the movie, the camels win, and um, and so it seems like they're going to move forward. And then right at the very end, and again, a very simplistic <laughs> storyline, uh, they get a letter. And in the letter, it explains that, uh, oh, by the way, we built railroads and camels aren't needed anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, no. Wah, wah. yeah, no kidding. So, I mean, as far as the, the timing aspect of this being in the, the 1850s there, was this kind of on the cusp of railroads? And was that, with all the successes that camels had, was that ultimately what led them to not being used, even though they seemed to be very successful from the sounds of it? Yeah, I think there's about three reasons why the experiment didn't work out. Um, and it's it's not just because the railroad is built. Because, um, okay, yeah, that changes things, but you don't see people stop using horses after the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, up into the 1930s, it's not until then when horses are outlawed in New York City. And in rural areas, you could probably find plenty of horses until the 1950s. That's It takes really until the mid-20th century until the automobile is universal and there's no pack animals. Um, railroads go to cities, but there's all these towns, all these back areas that they don't go to. And within a town, you might need some transportation to get around. So that's not the only factor. Um, what I would say is, number one, uh, horses and camels don't always mix very well. 
there something about the scent of a camel a horse just doesn't like and um there's a famous account in um i think with the Bur- the persians battle the lydians at the battle of thymbra and um one side scares the other side with a camel cavalry it scares the horses so that's how they're able to win um and this is something that's no- that is noted so major wayne when he's working with civilian drovers to teach them how to lead camels uh they learn how to feed and care for them but a camel can get violent when it's not handled well and it can bite someone. It can stomp someone to death just because it's so huge. And uh, they chew a cud like cows. And when they're annoyed, they can spit. So uh, there's probably plenty of, I don't know, elementary school field trips where a kid gets spit on when they go see the camels when they're <laughs> like trying to antagonize it. Um, but camels also have a weird smell. They don't smell any worse than horses, mules or anything like that, but they smell different. And horses that aren't familiar to that order can frighten them, that odor. And because horses are the, they're all over the place. There's millions and millions and millions of horses in the 19th century in America. Americans are trained to use horses. There are horse traders. This is what a lot of the economy is based on. And if camels don't fit in very well, then that's kind of hard to have them mix. So that's one factor of horses. And then of course, the other factor is the civil war that, um, when it kicks off, funds are withdrawn to continue it. The person who is leading it, I think it was uh, Beale and Wayne, they wanted funds for an extra thousand camels to be brought into America. And members of the Department of War were supporting it. But all funds are diverted from the Union government into the war effort at this time. And they're seen as being linked to the Confederacy. So a lot of, a lot of the reasons for it being discontinued are politics. Huh, that's that's interesting. Then afterwards, I mean, obviously in the real world, we had the Civil War that the movie doesn't even talk about. But there is a kind of a an epilogue of sorts where you see uh, Lieutenant Clemens, who's the James Hampton's fictional character, talking to his grandkids. And it's kind of been a telling throughout, you know, him reliving what happened. But then you he goes outside and you see that basically he was given charge of the camels that were in the experiment. So what happened to the camels? I mean, they were shipping all these camels into the U.S. and then the experiment is over and the Civil War is right around the corner. What happens to them? Are they, I mean, obviously not held by just one guy, you know, in, in his pen out back, right? But, um, but what actually happened to the camels afterwards? Yeah, I think their history after the camel experiment ends is really interesting. And the movie sort of gets it right that these camels are kept on by people who had a connection to them. This main guy in the movie, he's a fictional character, but that is true. I mean, there are camels that live on in America, in the desert, wild camels up into the 1940s, 1950s. And there's all these legends in the Southwest about them. Some of them are really creepy ghost stories. Um, but uh, just one character that comes up, uh, Haji Ali or Hai Jolly. He's in the movie. Uh, I think he's a white guy with Arab face, as they would call it, grease paint to make him look Arabian. Uh, what I think the character, the actor was Italian. He speaks with a British accent and claims to be educated at Oxford. I think that's just a simple way for the producers to not have to guess what an Arab accent sounds like. And at this time, Americans in the 1970s think of Lawrence Arabia when they think of Arabs. So that's what they did. Uh, Haji Ali or Hajali, Yeah, he wasn't trained at Oxford. A camelier was a pretty rough and tumble guy. And a Greek mother, a Syrian father. Might have been one of the first uh, Muslim immigrants to America. So, uh, But later on, he adopts a Christian identity. He goes by the name Philip Tedro and can speak Spanish. So he, I don't know. And I think he has a Mexican wife later on, so adapts to the Mexican Anglo hybrid Southwestern culture uh, when he lives there afterwards. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, when the experiment ends, the camels are released and there are a lot of different entrepreneurs who try to start businesses based off of them. Some of them try to start freight hauling businesses or postal services or uh, contractors to do surveying trips. Lots of different things that come out, but there's nothing that really takes off the ground. Uh, So there's one group, uh, there's a group of uh, actually Frenchmen in the Southwest in the middle 1860s that obtained two of the camels that were uh, released from this experiment. 
And by 1870, the pair increased to a herd of 25. The animals uh, are kept in a Nevada ranch that kind of looks like that closing scene in the movie where there's still camels. Uh, They carry salt and hay to different gold and silver mines near the Carson River. Uh, Sometime later, these camels are sent to Arizona where they haul ore from the Silver King mine to Yuma. But the business folds and the camels are turned loose in the desert near Maricopa Wells. Um, And Haji Ali, hi Jolly, he is um, kind of a very flagrant self-promoter. He's trying to start all sorts of businesses with these camels. He's the one who tries to start this postal service. Uh, tries to start a freight shipping business to handle mining equipment, but can't get it started. So ultimately he auctions off these camels to zookeepers in California. This is by the 1880s when um, California has a larger population. San Francisco is becoming more metropolitan. So he's able to tap into this economy. Uh, So hi Jolly, he just kind of his story. It's interesting. He becomes a citizen around 1880. Um, He, goes by the name Philip Tedro. He marries in Tucson. He has two daughters. He lives until 1902. And there's actually a monument built to him in Arizona that you can still drive by today that was built in 1935 as it's labeled the final campsite of Haji Ali. And it looks like a little pyramid with a camel on top. So this is kind of like the the last physical remnant of the U.S. Camel Corps. Uh, But there's all sorts of accounts in the American Southwest of people who saw these sightings. And one that was really interesting, it's from 1885, and there's a boy of about five, and his father commands an army garrison in New Mexico. And he he, uh, sees a sight that he recalls later in life. And he says, One day, a curious and frightening animal with a blobbish head, long and curving neck, and shambling legs, moseying around the garrison. The animal was one of the old army camels. And this boy was General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. Uh, But there's another story that is like one of the weirdest, most freakish, like real life ghost stories I've ever heard involving camels. Uh, You want to hear this one? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So when I heard this, I thought, what is like, this has to be made up. This can't be true. But it turns out it was. So I'm sure there's a true crime or whatever podcast or maybe lore needs to do this, whatever. Um (laughs) So in 1883, there's a woman living on a southern Arizona ranch who's trampled to death, and witnesses describe it as a huge red beast with a skeletal creature on its back. And local ranchers try to chase it down, but all they can find are hoof prints, not horse hoof prints, but cloven hoof prints and clumps of red animal hair. And there's other sightings, too, that have the same thing. It's this huge beast, and it has a skeleton riding on its back. It Sounds like Ghost Rider, kind of the Nicolas Cage movie. Uh, And there's more and more sightings. So it has a huge red beast, this skeletal devilish rider on the back. It can take down and kill large animals like cattle and bears. It can run faster than any animal that anyone's ever heard of. Then, of course, the legends grow and they inflate. They say it's 30 feet tall. It can disappear from sight. People start to call this thing the Red Ghost. Then a few months later, prospectors are working at the Verde River in Arizona, and they encounter the Red Ghost again. They fire the rifles at it, and it runs away. But as it's running away, there's something that falls off the creature's back. A local doctor goes to it, and he sees that it's a human skull, but it has hair still attached to it. Okay, what is it? So, of course, like legends and stories are just running all over the place about the Red Ghost. Uh, The Mojave County Miner, this newspaper writes that the beast may be a camel, but most residents have never seen a camel and they wouldn't know what one looked like. And but how do you explain the skeleton riding on its back? Uh, The sightings continue for about a decade until 1893 when a rancher sights a red ghost who's near his vegetable patch. He gets his rifle and he's able to finally bring it down with a shot. And then ranchers gather around it to view it. And it is a camel that's been terrorizing the area for about a decade. But, okay, what about the skeleton on the back? And they finally determine that the skeleton that's been seen riding with the camel was actually a human skeleton that had been clearly tied to the camel with thick leather straps many years earlier. And we have no idea what this was about, and there's different theories about what this rider could be. One theory is that Maybe it was a guy who was tied up to the camel as revenge for wrongdoings. How you always hear about, I don't know, somebody who's forced to like sit on a hill of fire ants with 
honey on his back as a way to be eaten alive. They, some people think that, or maybe he was a Union soldier that was tied to the animal by Confederate invaders of Camp Verde. Or maybe he was one of the first soldiers of the U.S. Camel Corps who was afraid of his camel and he was tied to it with straps, kind of like in Mighty Ducks, where the goalie is tied to the goal to force him to be able to handle it. Um, now, that last one, I really I think that would have made it into the records if that were true. But we don't know. So that's the story of the Red Ghost that like haunted the Arizona Territory as a ghost story for years and years and years. Wow. <laughs> that, that's that's yeah. crazy. I mean, it kind of makes me wonder how many other um, animal sightings you, you go from camels to almost a paranormal, supernatural type story, <laughs> right? But it, if if people, if you've never seen a camel before, you wouldn't think of seeing one, you know, in the wild like that, uh, especially because I'm assuming most people didn't even know that there was this experiment that was going on at that time. And you know, it's not like they had the internet, right, to be able to know everything that was going on. Um, that that that's a crazy story. That, wow, <laughs> I didn't I didn't think we were, when we were starting with with uh, Homps, you know, a seventies Disney movie ending on uh, Ghost Rider and uh, these you know animal sightings of of uh, well, for lack of a better term, yeah, almost paranormal type stories. You know, it's a similar type thing yeah. to what we see with uh, with those kind of things. Wow. I mean, Nicolas Cage, you can tie him into anything. So, <laughs> so <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to have to have, have you back on, Scott, to talk about the true story behind Ghost Rider and the... Uh, <laughs> 100% true. true. Um, well, just this is an addendum. Uh, forgive me if this is a tangent that doesn't connect. But um, so with movies like, I mean, almost any movie that claims to be historical is inaccurate. But this is weird. One of the most historically accurate movies out there is Dracula untold about it's like the weird, sexy Dracula, but it gets into Ottoman politics. And what's weird is that it's really accurate on what the Ottoman empire was up to. And I'm an Ottoman historian. So like all the Dracula stuff is obviously fake, but the historical stuff is better than 90% of anything out there. So all that's just to say, you never know what is or isn't accurate, but then something that claims to be accurate could be just total garbage. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to, uh, we'll table that one. We'll have to, we'll have to make that a feature episode and uh, chat about that. Cause I, I know which movie you're talking about and that's, that, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. All right. Can you uh, let everybody know where you, they can find your podcast and really just learn more about what you do? Yeah. So it's a history unplugged podcast. You can go to history and And what I try to do is uh, find stories of history that have affected us today, but just haven't made it into the historical record. And when I was doing my history PhD, I saw how messy the process of history really is because, you know, if you're writing, let's say a biography on Abraham Lincoln, it's not like there's five books of the Abraham Lincoln's five private memoirs and you just distill it down to a nice biography. You have to go through hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of documents private letters, uh, economic records, surveys, private memoirs of people in the town, newspaper articles, climate data. There is so much information to go through that you have to just choose some things and not use other sources. And then you have to take that mountain of information and write a cohesive narrative. Once a historian digests that into something that your average person can understand, then it's dumbed down even another level until, uh, middle schooler can memorize it for a test. But those little factoids that we learned in middle school stay with us forever. And we don't get to see that it is a very messy process behind the scenes. And what we know from history, it's not as if facts from the past organically bubble up and then we skim the surface and that's the historical truth. Some, a lot of times it's somebody who is distilling this information, giving it to us. Maybe they have an agenda saying it, Maybe they were just ignorant of certain facts. And we take those things and it becomes a record. But we always have to be going back into the past to find those things that can challenge the narrative. Or there are stories that are just as influential as the stories we do know, but we don't know those other ones, but they just didn't make it. So I'm always curious to go back in there and look at all the messy nuance of history. Um, I I guess you can really uh, boil things down to... uh, there's an episode of the Simpsons where Apu is applying to be a U.S. citizen. 
and somebody's asking him, why was the Civil War fought? And he says, well, it goes back to the nullification crisis of 1832. And the guy says to him, just say slavery. He says, slavery it is, sir. So like, even people who want to bring in all the complexity and nuance of the past, there are those that say, no, here's a stock answer. Boom, done. So I try to get into all the messiness of history. And um, with the U.S. Camel Corps, uh, what I like about it is we can look at it and think, well, they were dummies back then. Why would you use camels? That won't work. But people did things in the past because it made sense to them. And if it doesn't make sense to us, it doesn't mean that we're smart and they were stupid. It's that circumstances were so different back then that I want to understand those circumstances that made something like that make sense. So that's what I try to do. Context is a huge part of it. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Scott. I, re- I really appreciate it. And I, I learned a lot about the Camel Corps. I had absolutely no idea. <laughs> yeah, no problem. My pleasure. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre, along with, of course, my good friend Scott from over at the History Unplugged podcast. If you want to learn more about the U.S. Cavalry's Camel Corps, I would really recommend checking out Scott's podcast. His very first episode dives into more detail about the Camel Corps, not to mention over the course of hundreds of more episodes, plenty of more great bits of history. So go check it out at historyunpluggedpodcast.com. As always, I'll add a link to Scott's show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com for this show. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the U.S. Cavalry really did run an experiment to completely replace horses with camels. Number two, The railroad wasn't the deciding factor for why camels were not used in the cavalry. Number three, after the camel experiment, many of the camels were released into the wild. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number one. As Scott explained, even though there really was an experiment, it was not intended to fully replace or completely replace horses with camels like the movie suggests. Instead, the camels were primarily intended to be used for transportation, something comparable to the river system or the way that the river system in the east and midwestern parts of the United States were used. Once again, thanks to Scott for joining me on the show. And if you do want to hear him come back to explain some of the true history in the film Dracula Untold, just let me know. You can find me hanging out in the Base on a True Story Facebook group or If you'd prefer, you can find me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre. That's D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And the show is on Instagram. Over there, I like to post some of the photos of faces and places behind what we've learned here on the show. That's at Based on a True Story podcast. And really, if social media isn't your thing, remember, you can always say hi by emailing me at Dan at Based on a True Story podcast dot com. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll chat with you again really soon.